0: Good morning. My name is Jacob, and I'm the preaching minister here. This is, as I mentioned, a series we're going to begin today called "David, the Heart of the King." David, uh, we know a lot about him because there's a lot of ink spilled about David in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Samuel, where we're going to be hanging out during this series, and then a little bit at the beginning of First Kings. He was this man after God's own heart. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. He's Israel's hero. He's a model of leadership, and of faith. But let's not glorify David too much. He was a human like we are. He was flawed in a lot of ways. He tried to seek after God's own heart, but he didn't always hit that mark. He had his own struggles. He had his own temptations. And uh, maybe this is one of the reasons we like David so much. We can relate to him. We hopefully are men and women trying to seek after God's own heart. We have this ideal, we have this standard in Jesus, and we say, We want to be like him. We're going to take steps every day to try to be like Jesus. And then we go to bed at night and go, Did I, did I do it? Maybe a little bit. Not so much in the middle part of the day. And then maybe I, I, I missed the mark here and there. Um, but that's how, kind of how the life of David goes as well. So we're going to try to learn some lessons from him as we look at snapshots of his life during this series. We're not just going to be looking at David for for helpful Bible lessons or or character traits. We're going to see how to do life and leadership in relationship with and under the authority of the Lord. And this is going to point us to uh, our relationship with Jesus and his lordship in our life. Um, So yeah, let me give you, put things into context. We're going to be looking at the beginning part of the life of David, um, how he's been overlooked and how God makes this announcement that he is going to become the king. You might remember in Israel's history, there was the time of the judges where some people rose up and, and led Israel and they made some good choices and they made some bad choices. They had some successes. They had some failures. After the time of the judges, which in the book of Judges, it says there was no king in Israel and everybody just did whatever they thought was best by their own standard, which is not a very good way to run things. God is supposed to be king. Israel said, you know what we need? A king. And God said, you're right, and I'm your king. And they said, no, 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 not that. We need a king like our neighbors have. We need one person to sit on a throne and to make the decisions and to be the military might. We need a king like that. And God said, mm, that's not really what you need. That's not going to go as well as you think it'll go. And they said, yeah, yeah, we think it'll be fine. We want a king anyway. God says, okay, but again, it's not what you think. So God says, we'll let you have a king. And the first king of Israel was, who knows it? Saul. Saul. And Saul was all right. Saul was tall. Saul looked like a king. And uh, he was a king for a while. But eventually he disobeyed the Lord. He did some things that were wrong. But I think the real flaw in Saul was that um, he thought he knew better than God. Some of his specific disobediences had to do with not listening to what the Lord said. And eventually, God's prophet Samuel comes to Saul, the king, and he says, Your kingdom is not going to last. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And in another instance, Samuel comes to Saul, the king, and he says, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and so the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Samuel basically tells Saul, someone else will be king. So now the Lord sends Samuel to Bethlehem, telling him, there's this guy named Jesse, and he's got a lot of sons, and they're kind of tall, and they're pretty good looking, and one of those sons is going to be the next king. But he doesn't tell him which one. It's kind of a a mystery. He narrows it down, but he he doesn't tell him. So Samuel goes, okay, and he heads to Bethlehem. And what we're going to read next is the first of four stories that I want to share with you this morning of how someone else becomes king. That's going to be our theme today. So turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter where this story picks up of Samuel going to Bethlehem to look for this new king among the sons of Jesse. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him over, as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And I will skip down to verse 6. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest son, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called the next son, Abinadab, and he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, "Mm, no, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are these all of the sons that you have? Jesse says, Hmm. Oh, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, and he's out tending the sheep. And Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. And he was glowing with health, and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So You got this story of Samuel parading all of his presentable sons in front of Samuel. He looks at Eliab and he's like, sure, this guy could be king. He's good looking. He's tall. He's the oldest. It makes sense. He's probably the next king. This is what Samuel is thinking. This is probably what Eliab himself is thinking. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a good candidate to be the king. This is what Jesse is thinking as well. But then we get this classic line that you've probably heard before. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord and Samuel tell Jesse and his family that day, someone else will be king. It's not who you think. It's the person that the Lord has in mind. And it turns out the person the Lord had in mind was David. That's the first story about someone else. Becoming king. The second story has, uh, is at the end of the life of David. We're going we're to talk about David more in the coming weeks, but let's just fast forward, blast through his life, and get to the time where now he is on his deathbed. This is when Solomon becomes king. David is dying, and everybody knows that they're going to need to continue on this dynasty, so one of his sons is going to have to become the king. And Adonijah was one of David's oldest surviving sons. Uh, David was dying, and Adonijah just Basically says, you know what? I'll be the king. And some other people go, sure, like you can be the king. Yeah, I'll be the king. That's fine. Let's do that. He grabs Joab, one of the commanders of the armies. He grabs Abiathar, the, the prophet, and uh, they both say, sure, you can be king. I'll be king. Yeah, you be king. And they all decide among themselves, Adonijah is going to be the next king after David. And Adonijah is excited about this, and he throws himself a coronation party. He invites these influential people, he invites all of his friends, and they have a feast, and they celebrate, and it's this wonderful thing. Except, maybe he knew this, maybe he didn't know this, David had already promised his wife Bathsheba that Solomon was going to be the next king. Solomon is going to be the king. Adonijah is there at his party, and he's celebrating his self-appointed kingship. And they're having this celebration, and they just get done with the banquet, the feast. They're all sitting back and going, oh, that was a good celebration. If you throw a good party, you're going to be a good king. And they're just taking a breath. They're relaxing there at the table. And then they hear something off in the distance. What is that? It's coming from the city. It's a loud noise. It sounds like another party. It sounds like another celebration is happening. So he says, hey, somebody come tell me what's going on over there. And a messenger arrives, and they said, (laughs) and Adonijah says, what? Turns out, someone else had become king. Solomon was appointed the king while Adonijah's celebration was going on. How embarrassing would that be to have invited everybody out to your big promotion party and then have someone come and tell you in front of everybody you didn't get the promotion. You are not actually going to be the king. It turns out someone else will be king. Adonijah learned a lesson that Saul had learned in a previous generation, and that lesson is that you can't just say, I'll be king and have it so. You may find out that somebody else will be the king. That's story number two. Let's fast forward about a thousand years now. There's the, the kingship continues on, David, Solomon, others, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad, 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 bad. It kind of goes downhill. Uh, Israel finds itself in exile, then they return from exile, then there's imperialism, they're not in charge. Israel's never been quite the same. A thousand years later, we are now in the first century, and Israel is waiting for the Messiah, God's anointed one. They are looking for and hoping for a king like David who is going to have God's favor. He's somebody who's going to unite the people. He's going to lead with a fierce sword, and he's going to restore Israel's historic power and glory. And around the time of Herod the Great, there are rumors that begin to spread throughout the region that the Messiah has actually been born. This one that we've been waiting on for generations and generations. He's here. He's arrived. And it's exciting 30 years after that, news circulates that the time of the Messiah is at hand. That Messiah that we heard rumors about, well, he's older now. He's stronger. He's an adult. He is ready to take on this leadership mantle. But there are a few facts that are confusing about this Messiah that people are hearing about. One is that this Messiah has been, uh, he's from Nazareth. People are saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Another fact that seems a little bit tricky when it comes to being the Messiah is that he doesn't have an army. He doesn't live in a palace. He doesn't actually have a street address at all. He uh, doesn't have a sword. So how is he going to lead his people? How is he going to crush the Romans? Surely this man that the rumors are about can't possibly be the Messiah. Surely someone else is going to be king. is going to be the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Well, Jesus continues on with his ministry. There's a scene in the beginning of Luke where a widow's son uh, dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. That's pretty impressive, but he still doesn't have a sword. John the Baptist is one of the ones who are confused about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah or if there's going to be someone else. And he hears about this, and he sends some of his followers to inquire of Jesus. And he says this in Luke chapter 7. John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So they go and do that. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. They ask the question, Shouldn't Israel's Messiah and Savior be someone more like David? Or someone more like Solomon? Someone with influence and power and strength and horses and chariots and political savvy? And God answers, no, not how I see it. Someone else than who you have in mind will be king. My king is going to be more like me. And we see this as we study the Gospels and as we follow Jesus. We see that Jesus was an unlikely king. But the message of the Gospel is that he was the promised Messiah and he did everything that needed to be done to fulfill God's plan. He became the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. But even though he was the true king, he still submitted himself to the will of the Father. We learn this from Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done, O God. And in doing so, he sacrificed himself, and he saved us from sin and death. And that's why we worship him. That's why we follow him. That's story number three of someone else becoming king. Now I need to point out something at this point. There's a temptation when we study the life of David, and specifically when we look at this story of David and Samuel and the sons of Jesse and not looking at the outward appearance, there's a temptation for us to think of this just as an underdog story and to put ourselves in David's shoes and say, that's me. This is my story. I am trying to be a faithful person in a world full of outspoken self-promoters. And one day... God is going to look at me and he's going to see that I have a good heart. That I am a quiet and helpful worker and I don't, I don't require any of those things that, that famous people are looking for. I'm just being faithful. And in one day, God is going to raise me up and he's going to give me all of the things that I want. See, this is the temptation. This is not a good way to interpret this story. Although I have heard this story interpreted like this. The problem with this interpretation, and the problem with any interpretation that ends with us as king, is it's not the gospel. If we walk away from a story, if we look at the life of David and we say, yeah, he did it, and so can I. With God's help, I'm going to be raised up just like David, then that misses the mark of what Jesus taught us about what it truly means to submit yourself to the king and allow someone else to be king. So the fourth story is your story. It's my story. Every day, we get to wake up and we get to exert power and influence in our own kingdoms. You may think, I don't feel like a king or a queen. I don't feel like I have much power at all, but you do. It may just be the kingdom of your own free will where you get to decide what to do and to say and where to go and how to spend your own money. It could be the kingdom of your household where you have some influence. It could be the people that you're responsible for at work or the friends in your group of friends that you influence. It could be your online presence, your, your social media influence. Over there. Hi, by the way. Every day, you and me both, we have the very real opportunity. And some people would say we have the very right to say, along with Adonijah, I'll be king. I'll be the king. Okay, I'll be the king. Someone needs to be king. Why not me? That's our temptation. But the call of Jesus is this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to lose, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and let lose or forfeit their very soul? That's what Jesus actually says. When I became a follower of Jesus, someone showed me this and I believe I've shared this with you before. Bears repeating. It's good because you can share it with someone else. It's you're able to draw it on a napkin, and that means it's good. (laughs) The circle illustration. If this represents the circle is your sphere of influence, the little L-shaped thing, that's a, that's a chair. It represents the throne. This is you in charge of your life. You are at the driver's seat. You are at the steering wheel. You are the king of your kingdom. And before you come to know Christ, uh, you, you know about Jesus. You've seen the nativity. You know, Jesus is a thing. People go to church. That's something. But that's on the outside of your circle. That's on the outside of your life. You go, yeah, that's a thing, but it's not my thing. And then people hear the gospel, they, they, they decide whether or not they want to follow Jesus, and they begin to do that. Maybe they start coming to church, maybe they read the Bible, maybe someone shares faith with them, and they, they come to realize, you know what, these things are true. This Jesus is, is a good standard to set, to follow. And then they make a decision, okay, I'm going to let Jesus into my life. Some people think that there are only two circles, that it's, it's either you're, Jesus is out of your life or Jesus is in your life. But the way somebody described discipleship to me is that there's a third circle. And the third circle is this. It's not just having Jesus in your life, but it is allowing Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Where I am no longer on the throne, I have to volunteer to let Jesus be on the throne. Let Jesus be the true king of my life. To say, I have every right to rule my own kingdom, but someone else will be king and that someone else is Jesus. And this is maybe the hardest thing to do. This is the hardest thing to do. And very few people in your life, I am guessing, are reminding you to do this, are asking you to do this, are challenging you to do this. Most of the time, we rule our lives, and people let us, because they rule their lives. You don't tell me who should rule my life, and I won't tell you who should rule your life, and we have this understanding, and everybody's just got their own little kingdom. But that's not the gospel, and that's not discipleship, that's not following Christ. And I'm up here telling you today, it is hard, but it's the words of Jesus, it's the call of Jesus, lay down your life, Amen. give it over to me, and let me be in charge, not because I need it, not because I'm jealous of your, of your life, but because I can do it better than you can do. It is for your own good. I'm asking you to do this, he says, because I love you. I want you to have a better life. I want you to experience this kingdom that I came and sacrificed my life for. And our question, our challenge this morning is, are we willing to let him do it? Are we willing to let Jesus be the Lord of our life? Somebody, they showed me a trick of how to do this. It's hard, but there's a way to make it easier. There's a, there's a shortcut there's a quick way to get this done, and then it's not so hard, and it's not so painful. They wrote it down for me, and I want to share it with you this morning. I keep it with me because it's, it's the best trick that you'll ever learn. Hold on. That's not it. Hmm. Did I, I think I let Justin. Check your, check your pockets. Is it there? Is it up here? Do you have it? Slide of hand. No? If you got a dollar? That's not going to do it. Uh, well, shoot, you guys. I was all excited to share with you the shortcut, the way to do this easy and still get what you want and still, you know, sit with one cheek on the throne of your life. As it turns out, there isn't one. There's no shortcut. Don't you love it when people say, this is hard, but here's how to make it easier. Here's your goal, and here's the fast way to get there. I don't have that for you today. What I have is an admission that it is hard, and it's going to require discipline, intentionality. It's going to require work. So instead of giving you the shortcut, or the the easy version, or the, you know, let you off the hook trick, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to acknowledge that it's hard, and I'm going to challenge you with something that's even harder. And it's something I came across recently. It's called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. This English minister named John Wesley you might have heard of uh, 200, 250 years ago in England. His brother Charles Wesley wrote some of the psalms or the hymns that we sing uh, in our hymnal. This is his covenant prayer. This is a hard prayer to pray. I want to read it for you, and I I want to let it challenge you this morning. Listen to this dedication of somebody who is saying... Lord, be the Lord of my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. He says, I am no longer my own, but yours, God. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. How many times do you pray that? Lord, if you want me to suffer, let's do some suffering. I don't pray that ever. That's why this is hard. Let me be employed for you. Use me and, and do, let, me, let me work for you because I'm a worker. Or laid aside for you. Uh, how many times do you pray, Lord, put me on the bench. Let me not be involved in this important decision that my family is making, that the church is making. Do what you will and if it's me not being in charge, then that's all right. Lord, let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have no thing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And let the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. That's it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am yours. That's the challenge for us. No shortcuts, just devotion, dedication. How do you do this? This is upper-level stuff. If you're here for the first time this morning, I'm sorry, (laughs) this is is pretty heavy. Um, But this is the call of discipleship. To pray this and to mean it, you really have to have some trust in the Lord. You need to trust that Jesus being the Lord of your life is better than you being the Lord of your life. And it requires some honesty. You have to be honest with yourself about your own limitations, your own capacity for justice and for goodness and for leadership. Confession helps with this. Confession helps you be honest with yourself about where your goodness stops and you need the mercy and the grace and the influence of the Holy Spirit to take over and to do what you can't do on your own. To be honest with God and yourself and say, Lord, I am not fit to be the king of my life but I believe that you are. So you rule, and I'll serve. You lead, and I'll follow. You save, and I'll celebrate. Here's my heart, Lord. I give it to you. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song together, and then I'm going to come back and give you something to take home with you. Uh, We'll talk about that more in just a little bit.